Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. In an experiment. Why is light so fast? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing but but at some level astounding nature welcome back to the nature podcast this week using genomics to map the migration of the vikings and the world's smallest ultrasound detector i'm nick Hell. and i'm benjamin thompson First up on the show, we're heading back in time, over a thousand years to when the Vikings ruled the waves here in Europe. This week in Nature, a team of researchers have been using modern genomic techniques to work out who these intrepid explorers were and how they left their footprint across Europe and the North Atlantic. Reporter Dan Fox is here to tell us more. Vikings hold a particular grip on our popular culture. Films, comic books, operas and pop songs have all been written about these ancient, blonde-haired barbarian raiders. Now, most of what I just said is based more on Marvel comics rather than historical fact, but what do we actually know about who the Vikings were? Broadly speaking, the Viking Age is defined as the 300 years from about 750 to 1050 AD, and the Vikings themselves as the people living in or moving out of Scandinavia at that time. That is how we usually define it, by these people who, who move out and migrate. But actually, there's there's quite a lot more to it. There's a lot more interaction, people going back and forth, a lot of people coming back into Scandinavia as well. And that's what makes the picture a bit more complicated and difficult to say what a Viking really is. This is Kat Jarman, an archaeologist specialising in Viking history. Given that it's even hard to define exactly what a Viking is, I asked her what we do know about the Viking Age. So we know that there's a lot of movement going out of Scandinavia in this time period, and we see this uh, in a lot of the archaeological materials. And part of the problem we have is that we don't really know that much about the actual people involved in terms of how many are physically moving out of Scandinavia. We don't know how many of these objects, grave goods, town settlements are actually uh, founded by people and how many are a result of just more sort of cultural diffusion I, I guess so the question is really what are the actual people doing in this time period what's the populations looking like where are they going um, what are the sort of finer structures within that so how much did the vikings move around 
Well, a paper published this week in Nature may have some answers. Martin Sikora is one of the authors, and he explained to me how he and his colleagues are trying to answer this question using ancient DNA taken from archaeological specimens. In a way, it's, it's quite similar to modern genetic studies that look at you know population diversity and, and, and try to investigate differences uh, and similarities between populations. The only difference is that we do this back in time. Martin and his colleagues have sequenced the genomes of 442 humans from archaeological sites across Europe and Greenland in the hopes of gaining a better understanding of the Viking Age and how Vikings themselves moved around. So we find that the individuals from from Norway mostly went to to the North Atlantic. So we find uh, Norwegian-like ancestry in, in, in Orkney and the Faroe Islands in Iceland and in Greenland and to a large extent uh, and in Ireland. We find Danish ancestry is very present in England, which is also, of course, in line with the uh, historical records. And Swedish-like ancestry is very much present in Eastern Europe, so uh, across uh, the Baltic Sea, in in the Baltic area, and also in Poland and Russia, where we we do have samples from. For Kat, this study was particularly interesting, as it illustrated not only where the Vikings spread to, but where they came from. For me, I think the most uh, important thing is actually looking at some of the dynamics of going inwards to Scandinavia. So they have, for example, they've pointed out that uh, there are people moving from Southern Europe into Scandinavia in this time period, which is something that we've not really had a lot of evidence uh, for before. There's a lot of objects going in, there's a lot of things being traded, but actually to have some evidence of people moving north and from Southern Europe especially is really, really exciting. Martin's work is also hinting at the extent of a cultural influence the Vikings had at the time. They've got individuals as well with uh, Pictish ancestry uh, from the Orkney Islands who are buried with what we would typically define as sort of Viking or Scandinavian artefacts, but actually who have got quite a, a different ancestry and genetic history. And that sort of thing, for me as an archaeologist, is, is very exciting because it's adding to something that we can't find from the typical archaeological record. Despite her excitement, Kat does worry that the paper may overgeneralise in some of its conclusions. They are trying to make some generalizations over a very long time period, so um, several hundred years and a very, very large geographical region. They aren't able to break anything down chronologically, um, which is a bit of an issue because you can't necessarily assume that what happens right at the start of the Viking Age uh, corresponds to what happens in, in 1050 or you know after the turn of the millennium. And I think that is simplifying things a bit too much in a way that isn't very helpful. Martin, however, thinks that geographically the sample is representative. Where he would most like to have more data is from the preceding Iron Age. There is just not that much data yet available across Europe from the Iron Age to be able to say conclusively what changes happened before from the Iron Age to the Viking Age in those different regions. We can, you know, we have some in our data set and we, we, we already see some interesting patterns. But in order to confirm that or, or more thoroughly test it, we would need some more sampling from the preceding time periods. While Martin would like to expand the data set, Kat thinks the next steps should be to drill deeper into some of the examples highlighted in this paper. I think there's an awful lot to unpack from this study and there's a lot of data there that's really, really exciting. I think what needs to be done now is actually to look at each of these case studies in detail, combine it with all the other evidence, which is something obviously they haven't been able to do yet. So I think once we we take this evidence and break it down, look at things like gender they haven't looked at, uh, and again also chronological uh, patterns, 
that's, I think, when uh, we get something really, really important and significant about the Viking Age. So I feel like this is an, a really hugely exciting starting point of data, but now that there's a real work thing of, uh, of trying to then put it into more context. For now, though, our next steps may be to put some old Viking stereotypes to bed. It's not that we, we find that the, you know, the Vikings were these very, very tight-knit communities in most places where it's only very, very homogeneous Scandinavian ancestry and like the blonde, blue-eyed warriors that go around. But actually, in many places, there's a, a, a large amount of diversity and there's a lot of influx from different regions. So, so I think it goes in line with what we have learned about human population history also from, from other ancient DNA studies. I think that the past was just much more dynamic than we m- might have appreciated before. That was Martin Sikora of the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. You also heard from Kat Jarman from the Museum of Cultural History in Oslo, Norway. You can find a link to Martin's paper in today's show notes. Next up on the show, it's time for Coronapod. And I'm joined this week by Noah Baker and Heidi Ledford to discuss the latest coronavirus developments. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi there, Ben. Today we're going to be talking about the University of Oxford and AstraZeneca vaccine trial. Now, this vaccine is in phase three testing at the moment, and there is a lot of hope for it. I think it's seen as one of the leading vaccine candidates. But this trial was rather abruptly paused just over a week ago. And, well, there's a lot to unpack around what happened and the way it was communicated. But before we get into that, Heidi, could you maybe give us a quick timeline of what's been going on? Basically, what happened is that the news leaked, right? I mean, there wasn't really a formal announcement about this pause that was put on the trial. You know, there was a bit of information that was coming from here and there, but some of it hasn't since been confirmed. But essentially, what we believe happened is that someone in the trial experienced some sort of medical event. So what they did then, I mean, it's a trial that's going on in several countries. They put a pause on the trial in all of the relevant countries so that they could evaluate what was going on and make sure that, you know, this event that they saw in this particular participant in the trial wasn't obviously a result of receiving the vaccine. Because if they keep giving the vaccine to more participants, but they have this indication that there might be a safety worry, that would be unethical, right? The UK pretty quickly actually jumped back in a few days later and said, okay, let's crank it back up again. So the indication from that then is that they've evaluated the situation and they've decided that this vaccine does not obviously pose a risk to the participants. And so they're able to carry on with the trial. So I guess there's a lot to talk about here. Um, But at the same time, there's kind of very little to talk about. It's kind of this odd story where on one hand, a lot of people are very interested in this because so many hopes are resting on a vaccine. But on the other hand, A lot of what has happened, maybe not all, because there are some things we can talk about later about how this was communicated or not communicated, but a lot of what has just happened is relatively standard practice for a clinical trial. You know, events like this happen, pauses happen, they're assessed, and then the trial continues if they're deemed to not be associated strongly enough with the vaccine. You've reported on clinical trials for quite some time. What has your sort of takeaway been as you've seen these events unfold? I mean, I do think it is fairly normal, but I also kind of think that if you had a mild panic attack when you heard the news, that that's kind of a normal response too, right? I mean, these big clinical trials, they've got thousands of people enrolled. During the course of the trial, some of these people are going to experience medical events of some kind. And it's not always going to be the case that what you're testing, in this case, you know, a vaccine caused that medical event, but a responsible clinical trial investigator 
if there's a chance that it might have caused that event, the investigator is going to put a pause on the trial and take a look just to be sure. So, you know, I think what's different in this case is that the whole world is waiting with bated breath on these vaccines. We are so desperate for them to work and we don't want there to be any kind of hint that there might be something wrong, right? So it was worrying. You know, I've covered trials for a long time. I knew that it's something that could happen. It's normal for it to happen. My first reaction was, oh, no, you know, but then afterwards you do think, well, actually, it's kind of comforting because it is a sign of a responsibly conducted clinical trial. And there have been some worries, especially with the political pressure in the United States to get something out quickly and ahead of the U.S. election in particular, there have been some worries that there are going to be corners cut. And to see them pause a trial and you know evaluate a safety situation like this, that's it's comforting in a way, too. I mean, it seems like they're doing the right things then from what you're saying. But and yet you've said things like hint there. And I think it seems like the way that this information came out was perhaps slightly unusual, to, to me at least. Yeah, I think it was less than ideal, but I don't know how unusual it really was. The sad truth is that, you know, the world didn't find out about it from a big announcement from AstraZeneca or anything. It was basically leaked information that was published, I think, initially by STAT. And then some more detail came out in a private call with investors that the CEO of AstraZeneca had. We have seen particularly some academic researchers, I think, complain loudly about this and say there needs to be more transparency. Truthfully, they've been complaining for years. So they're making a particular argument this time because this vaccine is so, so important to so, so many people. And also because it's received so much government support, you know, in the U.S., for example, they're saying, hey, you owe the taxpayers. You need to let us see the details of what's going on. It's a good argument. I mean, it's something that might have traction with the public and with politicians, maybe. But long before that, researchers have been saying, you know, your primary obligation is not necessarily to the people who are funding the trial. Your primary obligation is to the people who are participating in the trial, right? Because these guys are putting their health on the line. Maybe they want some personal benefit, but when they do surveys of people who participate in clinical trials, they will often cite a possible benefit to society as being a key motivating factor there. We sort of owe them to squeeze every bit of information we can from the trial, and we owe them to be transparent about it so that we can be sure that it's well-designed, that it's safe, and that it's likely to get the answer we're looking for. So, yeah, people have been pushing for it for so long, but truthfully, I don't think it's that uncommon to be a bit secretive. And, and there are arguments saying that, well, we can't give all the details of this particular event because it could compromise patient confidentiality. And I've seen people argue that, well, you could have given us some details without necessarily compromising, you know, confidentiality. So Nature's also published a story about this and about this transparency. And there are researchers in that story that are saying there are other arguments for not releasing information. There are rumors that the, the person that fell sick was with something called transverse myelitis, which is a condition that could be associated with viruses, perhaps. It's like an inflammation of the spinal column. But there are scientists that are saying, you know, even publishing that information is maybe not good when it comes to the objectivity of the researchers. You know, the point of a clinical trial is that it should be blind as much as possible. And so as much as possible, all the people involved in this trial should know as little as possible about these things. So they're not going to start seeing associations where there aren't or missing data because they're focusing too much on one thing or the other thing. So there is kind of like an argument that for the sake of the trial, these things shouldn't be released as well as just the confidentiality of the patients. Yeah, that's right. It's a really complicated issue. I mean, I know over the years when I've interviewed investigators or physicians about a trial or a treatment, and they'll tell me some interesting anecdote about a patient, and it will seem so safe. It will seem like it wouldn't identify anybody, but then they'll have a think later and they'll realize, oh, no, no, you know, actually that could be identifying because of this thing and this thing and this thing that I had no idea, you know? <laughs> so I can't really judge 
in a particular case, should they have released this information? Should they not? I know in some trials I have gotten more information about adverse events than I have in this particular case, but it may be that the design of this trial is such that it's more damaging to release that information. And it may be there are circumstances around the patient that would make it a breach of confidentiality to release that particular information. There are sort of more broader parameters of the trial that haven't been made public that I think researchers would really like to know that aren't specific to this event, but maybe have more to do with how the trial is structured, how it's going to be overseen safety-wise and so forth. And that's something you know that might have a little bit less of a gray area in terms of releasing that information. But it's absolutely right. There are some good reasons in certain cases to hold back. I think as well, you know, one thing that we could think about is because of the intense sort of scrutiny and media scrutiny on everything that happens, you know, you could almost argue there's a reason not to be so transparent there because of what people might do with that information. This is a very devil's um, advocate argument and certainly not an argument that I'm making, but you could imagine that people here study paused and then media react with this is a dangerous vaccine and so on and so on. And I think it's probably also worth mentioning that As far as we know, this is actually not the first time that this trial has been paused as well. This trial has actually been paused before, but it wasn't leaked and so therefore wasn't talked about. And I wonder whether or not this pause is any different from the first pause and whether or not, you know, this adds to the confusion that we didn't hear about the first pause at the time back in July. Reportedly, it was because a patient developed multiple sclerosis, which was seen to be not relevant to the vaccine. And so the trial continued. I guess I have a big question about how much weight we put on any of these reports, because, you know, depending on when they come and how they come, it can change everyone's perception of them. No, it's true. And, you know, the problem with vaccine hesitancy, for example, I don't know how best to deal with that. But I do feel like there are ways to sort of provide information, you would hope, without inciting a panic, but while at the same time informing the public. But, you know, nowadays, I don't know what's going to get picked up on Facebook and distorted anymore. I mean, I guess the counterpoint to that is also we don't want everybody to assume vaccines are safe automatically before they've been fully tested. You know, again, in the US, where I pay a lot of attention to the news because I'm American, but... You have Donald Trump pushing for a vaccine to come out before the election to help him win. I mean, in a way, this this pause was a good reminder that, no, you've got to you've got to make sure these things are safe before you push them out and that you could potentially have an adverse event. So maybe reminding the world that that's a possibility is kind of a good thing, too. I don't know. There is this kind of air of underhand that comes across from the way information about this has come across, which I think is really confounded people's reaction to this story. So a lot of information that has been leaked has come from a kind of a closed private call between the CEO of AstraZeneca and select investors to give them information about what this means so that the investors would know. And I think that any kind of information that comes through the money channels quite quickly triggers people to smell a rat, I suppose. And you wonder whether or not if there had just been transparency from the beginning that wouldn't have been a concern in the same way. People might not have reacted in the same way. I mean, I think that's possible. I think there's a longstanding skepticism, especially in the United States, that's growing of the pharmaceutical industry because they are charging such high prices for drugs. And it's making it very clear that profit motive is clearly at work, right? So you've got that. You've also got in the U.S. this horrible opioid addiction epidemic some of which has been sort of pinned on pharma for pushing the overprescription of these opioids and so on. So you have a lot of skepticism about the pharmaceutical industry. And I think to some extent, helping us deal with this pandemic is a way to sort of salvage their reputation. But not being transparent doesn't really help that happen. I guess, you know, it, it just sort of feeds into the conspiracy theories and the skepticism that's already there. There is also an uncomfortable reality that maybe we're overlooking slightly here, which is that a lot of phase three trials don't 
work. It's quite common for trials to get to the end of all this, all this effort goes in, and then nothing comes of it because it doesn't work. It's not a question of when it works and how long it's going to be. The outcome of this could be that we don't have a vaccine. Yeah, I mean, I've got one of those uh, apocryphal sort of stats that it's sometimes hard to prove, and it's that uh, 10% of drugs make it to phase one, of which only 10% of that make it through to phase two, to which only 10% of that make it through to phase three. So, you know, waiting for success to happen isn't necessarily what is going to happen. I mean, I think this pause on the trial was a good sort of reality check. I mean, I could find myself kind of slipping into that fantasy as well that, oh, you know, these trials are going well, they're going to work. And there's reason to be optimistic because, you know, the preclinical data looked all right. The early clinical data looked promising. Fauci's out there saying, hey, maybe we're going to have something by the end of the year. But I do think this was a good reality check. Most experimental vaccines fail. And some of these are using platforms to develop vaccines that we don't have a lot of experience with. And it's also a virus that we don't have experience with. It's not a flu vaccine, right? So there are so many issues, you know, even if these succeed in the clinical trials, how well do they work in the elderly, right? We're going to need to know that. They may not work that well. Or maybe they cut down on symptoms, but do they cut down on infection as well? Do you end up generating a lot of people who are walking around as asymptomatic carriers of the virus? You know, and then, of course, the big issue of how do you deploy it in an equitable way? I catch myself looking at these trials as like, oh, when they're done, we have a vaccine, then we just got to get out there and we're set. You know, there's still a lot of questions, a lot of details to work through. And I do think the pause was kind of a reminder of that is one reason why it gave us all a panic attack. I think I think deep down we know this is a fantasy, right? And so this reminder of reality, we really don't want it. But it was maybe useful in that way. It certainly seems like this is a story that is going to run and run. Um, Heidi, I hope you'll join us again to talk more about it when it does. But for the time being, Nora and Heidi, thank you so much for joining me on Coronapod this week. Thanks, Ben. Thanks so much, Ben. Listen out for more Coronapod next week. And listeners, if you're involved in a coronavirus clinical trial, either as a participant or as a researcher, Nature would like to hear from you. I'll put up a link to a survey in this week's show notes, so if you fit the bill, please go ahead and fill it in. Coming up later in this week's show, we'll be hearing about an incredibly small ultrasound detector. Before that, though, Shamli Bundel is here with this week's research highlights. You might think hummingbirds spend their time sipping nectar from tropical plants on warm, sunny days. But hummingbirds can also be found in less hospitable settings, including high in the Andes Mountains, up to 5,000 metres above sea level, where nighttime temperatures drop to near freezing. It's a tough environment for a tiny bird, so these hummingbirds often go into a state of torpor. They become cold, motionless and unresponsive, with a slowed heart rate, similar to the state of hibernation, but lasting only a single night. Researchers monitored 26 hummingbirds of six different species who spend their nights high in the Andes. They found that the birds' metabolic rates dropped by up to 95%, and in some cases their body temperature dropped by over 25 degrees. In fact, one metal-tail hummingbird set the record by dipping its body temperature to just 3.3 degrees Celsius, the lowest ever recorded in a bird or a non-hibernating mammal. The next morning, the birds warmed themselves up again and off they went. Read more in Biology Letters. The burnt remains of an ancient grain silo in Turkey is giving archaeologists new insights into the way of life of the Hittite people, who lived in the region over a thousand years ago. The huge silo was built in the Hittite capital and could store over 5,000 tonnes of cereal grain in numerous sealed chambers. 
but soon after it was built, the silo was partially destroyed by fire. Several of the burnt chambers were abandoned, and the charred grains inside were left untouched. To get an idea of where these grains came from, researchers looked at the different species present, and the atomic isotopes within the seeds. The wide range of species, which included crops and weeds, and the varied isotope ratios suggest this wasn't just local storage. The food probably came from a large number of different farms in different locations. This suggests the grain may have been collected together as part of a tax paid to the crown. The fact that the burnt storage chambers within the silo were never cleaned out or reused suggests that after the fire, the Hittites may have thought twice about storing all their grain in one place. Read more in the journal Antiquity. Next up, reporter Ali Jennings is here to tell us about a new type of ultrasound technology that could peer inside people in ultra-fine detail. How do you see through someone's skin? Perhaps you want a scan of your unborn child, or to watch a patient's heartbeat through their chest. One solution is to use ultrasound. Sound waves at a frequency too high for human hearing. Classical ultrasound, like you might find in a hospital, directs sound waves at an object of interest, then detects the waves that bounce back. These reflected waves can be translated into an image. It works a lot like sonar. But Vasilis Christos from Munich Technical University in Germany, does it another way. He uses light. When molecules absorb light, essentially they take this energy and uh, there's a minute temperature increase inside tissue. Uh, And because of this temperature increase, there's a volume increase. This is a transient, however, phenomenon. So essentially what we have is a, a volumetric expansion and contraction, and that generates an ultrasound wave inside the tissue. When tissue absorbs light, It momentarily swells, then contracts, fast enough to produce a high-frequency sound that Vasilis can measure. This is called optoacoustics. The technique has been around for a while, but Vasilis wants to use it to image smaller and smaller structures, down to a microscopic scale. That's where things get tricky, though. The smaller the thing you want to image, the smaller your detector needs to be. So ultrasound detection has been traditionally based on what's called the piezoelectric technology. And this technology essentially converts ultrasound waves, uh, that pressure, to electrical signals. And those piezoelectric detectors, they can be manufactured to be very small. But as you start reducing their area, their sensitivity drops. So there's a certain limit that is defined essentially by sensitivity to which these detectors can be practical. To solve this detection dilemma, Vasilis and his team have created a new kind of ultrasound sensor, one that can be made extremely small, yet still retain its sensitivity. Here's how the sensor works. Down at a microscopic scale, two tiny mirrors are placed facing each other, a very short distance apart. Light is then shone into the gap where it bounces back and forth between the two mirrors. When an ultrasound wave passes through the sensor, the pressure changes the distance between the mirrors. 
That changes how the light waves bouncing around inside interact with each other, and the light becomes darker or brighter. By measuring the change in brightness, Vasilis and his team can detect an ultrasound wave passing through. These types of detectors already exist, but the breakthrough was realizing you could build these devices 500 nanometers wide on a silicon chip. This is possible because light travels more slowly through silicon than standard optical fibers. That allows the pathways that channel the light to be built only a few micrometers thick. Which means we can now have a detector that is so small that can image way beyond、uh, the wavelength of the ultrasound used. So it is the first time that super resolution imaging at such high sub wavelength scale is achieved ever. Vasilis's detector allows him to make out details less than one micrometer in size. Think around the size of a bacterium, but unlike a standard microscope. Vasilis's 500 nanometer detectors will be able to fit into tight places. So essentially, this more for biological explorations or for ultra miniaturized endoscopes. Let's say you can see now features that they would be much smaller on a more superficial level than is the capacity of any classical ultrasound detector. So we could see very small microvasculature, or we can see details of single cells. In the future, these ultrasound detectors could be built into medical probes that would allow us to study a patient's internal systems in unprecedented detail. Vasilis and his team hope that this technology will become widely available because it makes use of existing silicon chip manufacturing techniques. This, they say, means that multiple sensors could be built onto a single chip with relative ease. But Vasilis is keen to point out. That the technology is not just for the clinic. The detector can not only visualize things in tissue, but it can study fundamental phenomena better because of this very high resolution. So imagine that you want to study something relating to ultrasound, from basic ultrasound wave propagation and what happens to waves in a certain material or medium. You can do this fundamental observation of the wave. With a discrimination ability that was never possible before, because the sensor is much smaller than the size of the ultrasound wave, it can provide a very detailed image of the shape of the wave itself. This opens up a whole new way to study the physics of ultrasound. Although this kind of detail won't be available in classical clinical ultrasound, so don't expect any high-res portraits from the prenatal ward. But we can look forward. To taking a better look at sound itself. That was Ali Jennings. To learn more about tiny ultrasound detectors, head over to the show notes where you'll find a link to Vasily's paper. Finally, on the show, it's time for the weekly briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of articles that have been highlighted in the Nature Briefing, and that is, of course, Nature's daily pick of science news and stories. Nick, what's caught your eye this week? Well, I'm sure it hasn't escaped your attention, or many of our listeners, for that matter, that many parts of the U.S. are experiencing wildfires, and you may have seen that parts of California, for example, are looking sort of orange tinted. So I was looking into why that is. Yeah, of course. I mean, these wildfires are up and down the West Coast, and our thoughts go out to anyone affected. But yes, a lot of the pictures that I've seen online do have this kind of orange. 
hue to them and i assume that it was just fires in the distance yeah so you might think that it's just that sort of light coming through but actually many of these places in california that have this orange glow are quite far away from the fires themselves and so what the reason is is because there's something called a marine layer which is a layer of air which is a mixture of cool moist air and warmer air that tends to sit near coastlines And this layer of air can act as a barrier to certain kinds of particles. And so what that means is the smoke particles, as they come across over California, blown by the wind from where the fires are, they sit on top of this layer and then they block certain wavelengths of light from coming through. Ah, and I guess then the the sun streams down and it's coming through this layer and and that's what's giving this this kind of coloration to, to the sky, right? Yeah, I mean, you might be familiar as to why the sky is blue, like certain particles in the atmosphere scatter blue wavelengths of light. But these smoke particles, they're much larger than particles that normally exist in the atmosphere. And so they scatter a much greater array of wavelengths of light. And only really the red and orange ones can get through. So you actually end up with a very strange sort of orange glow that you might see in Blade Runner or something like that. Ben, what's your story this week? I think you were also looking into something to do with the sun. Yeah, that's right, Nick. This week I've been looking at a piece which has been exploring kind of the very edges of the solar system, where, where it ends and the kind of the interstellar medium begins. Ooh, interstellar medium sounds very interesting. Is that just everything not in the solar system? Well, yeah, so the interstellar medium then, this thing, sort of thing between stars, has been studied really for quite a long time uh, with, with sort of telescopes here on Earth. And, I mean, it's, I don't know, ionised hydrogen atoms, cosmic rays, this kind of uh, dust clouds, all, all these sorts of things, right? But it's where these two things combine, the edge of the solar system and this interstellar medium, that's kind of been a bit puzzling for researchers. Right, OK, so there's the stuff coming out of the sun sort of pushing out and showing what the boundary of the solar system is and everything else from outside pushing against it. So why has it been hard to work out where that boundary is? Can you not just see? Well, there's a great quote in the article that says something like, if you want to know what the outside of your house looks like, you need to go outside and have a look. I think that's (laughs) been part of the problem here. So the sun kicks out this kind of solar wind of these charged particles, and they sort of radiate out. And it's where these kind of meet up with this interstellar medium. You get sort of a push-pull effect, and it's been quite difficult to know what it looks like. But thankfully for us, the Voyager 1 and 2 probes, which were uh, launched in the 70s to look at the planets at the sort of fringe of the solar system, have just kept going and they've sort of passed into this medium and can see you know what's going on and pray tell what is going on great question nick well i will say it's not a kind of a defined boundary it's not kind of the solar system and then nothing it's well it's this kind of maelstrom of these kind of clashing magnetic fields and charged particles and it's massive this area it's millions of kilometers across and what's interesting about it is it kind of changes a bit as well for example when the solar system passes through the galaxy into a an area with more or less dense interstellar medium the boundary you know shifts closer or further away okay and now we sort of have an understanding of what the edge is what what does that mean like what are scientists hoping to do with this information next well there's a bunch of questions to answer here Nick. And, and this kind of wind coming out of the sun creates this bubble called the heliosphere. And I think what's of interest to a lot of researchers is, you know, how rare is this? Is this quite a common thing? And it's kind of intriguing as well as, you know, is this 
something that is imperative if life is to exist anywhere else. Because this, this heliosphere bubble really protects the solar system, really, really shields it from being battered by these kind of cosmic rays. I think it says here it sort of filters out about 90% of them, which otherwise would, well, pretty much scour everything clean. Okay, so there's this warring effort that is the edge of the solar system. But I think we've actually also reached the edge of the briefing chat. So listeners, if you like more stories like these, then make sure you check out the Nature Briefing. We'll put a link of where to sign up and links to the stories we've discussed in this week's show notes. That's all for this week. But if you want to get in contact with us, then you can reach us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast or you can send us an email. We're podcast at nature.com. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Nick Howe. See you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.